professor Riti Ma Sharma is an incoming PhD scholar at the Department for the Study of Religion, University of Toronto, and the recipient of the Kanod Fellowship. She completed her MPhil titled "Rethinking the Car Protection Movement: Gender, Caste, and Labor" at a Gao Shala in contemporary Haryana at the Center for Women's Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. She has taught as a visiting faculty at the Savitri Bhai Phule, Pune University, and at Flame University in Pune. Her research interests include the anthropology of religion, feminist theory and methodology, caste and Brahminism, nationalism, ethnography, oral histories, sexuality studies, and ethnographic filmmaking. In this podcast, we discuss her MPhil dissertation, an ethnographic inquiry of a VHP-run cow shelter in Faridabad, Haryana, which also marked her point of entry into her doctoral work. Hello, Professor, and thank you so much for taking out the time today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so, first and foremost, I think I'd like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, uh, and about uh, the research that you've engaged with as well. Thank you, Abha. Thank you for having invited me to your podcast, which sounds very exciting, and I'm really happy to be here. About my background, so I have had a fairly multidisciplinary sort of trajectory. My bachelor's was in English literature from Delhi University. I pursued my master's in a very interdisciplinary sort of course from uh, TIS in Bombay, Media and Cultural Studies. After that, I worked for around well, for a few years, broadly in the areas of gender, communalism, secularism. So after my master's, I worked uh, in the capacity of a researcher, which basically furthered my interest in research, uh, but also broadly in the area of women's studies, which in some universities has also been called by various things like gender studies, sexuality studies, feminist studies, etc. So all of this kind of culminated in my decision to pursue an MPhil uh, in women's studies from JNU in Delhi. Currently now I am on my way to join uh, University of Toronto for my PhD. My PhD is going to be broadly located. It, it's uh, I think at a future point we are going to talk about my MPhil, so I can discuss more about how the MPhil actually became a point of entry into what I imagine my doctoral project to be. And between the MPhil and the PhD, I was teaching. I was teaching at Flame. I was teaching for a bit at Pune University. And broadly, my teaching interests have also been um, across areas of gender, uh, Brahminism, caste. Uh, I've taught courses to do with social exclusion, uh, research methodology, etc. Yeah, and you know, I think. Uh, looking at your MPhil research itself, you've chosen to look at the cow protection discourse as an area of research. And you've also looked at its corresponding intersections with caste and gender. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your research is about and uh, and uh, the reasons for your interest in, in this area as well? Let me first talk about the second part of your question, which is yeah, my yeah. interest in what led me to doing this, which was, I think a large part of the reason was serendipitous. I stumbled upon it by accident. So it so happened that while I was doing my MPhil coursework, um, my grandmother, uh, who had been diagnosed with cancer, uh, passed away. And a lot of developments around this uh, led to my family coming in contact with a goshala or a cow shelter in Faridabad, which is my quote-unquote hometown. Um, I was to discover later that this Goshala, in fact, was founded and run by a militant Hindu nationalist organization uh, that we know as the Vishwa Hindu Parishad. So uh, for your listeners uh, who may not be fully keyed into the context of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, I think it would be sufficient to say that it is uh, one of the most significant organizations within the larger Sangh Parivar. Uh, and currently, uh, it actually sort of its political career really took off in the 90s uh, with the uh, demolition of the Babri Masjid. And that is what it has been. Uh, it had been spearheading uh, the cause for. 
So I, I was to discover that the Goshala is run by the VHP. So initially it was just an interest to understand what this Goshala is and what it really does and what really happens within its space. Uh, but as I visited the Goshala more and more, uh, I became interested in the ways in which not only the Goshala is structured as a space and place, but the ways in which it is situated against the larger backdrop of the cow protection movement in Haryana in particular. So what I wanted to foreground was also this uh, specificity of this Goshala being located in the state of Haryana, because there's a particular context to Haryana being Haryana. Like you correctly mentioned, um, the Goshala emerged as a very, very gendered caste marked face, but also my own access to the Goshala was heavily mitigated by questions of caste and gender, which again, I hope to talk about in greater detail. So uh, the MPhil then, uh, what began as a curiosity about the Goshala as a space and place, then became an ethnographic study of the Goshala to understand the ways in which routinized practices of gender, caste and labor. I think these three were uh, central analytical categories to my work, uh, shape the Goshala uh, and help us locate it as an actor against the larger cow protection movement in Haryana. So that's what the infill was about. Certainly right. And you know, I think um, at least the way that I understand it, that most people have always seen it, right, is that the cow as an animal has for long been, you know, such an important uh, symbol, you know, to Hinduism. But I think beyond understanding, you know, the cultural and importance in, in like festivals and stuff, I think many of us don't really understand the intersections it has with caste and with like gender as well. So I think I'd like to know a bit more about that so we can get, you know, like a better understanding into like what your research was about. Right. So one of the things that I then realized when I started this ethnography and I started up reading more about the cow protection movement in India, one is that it's good to know that a lot of work has been done on the cow as an animal. And this, this has been very rich work coming from disciplines of anthropology, economics, history, sociology. Right. So the cow actually has been at the center of a lot of academic and popular debate. And there has been a lot of work, like I said, on the cow protection movement. So uh, Sandra Freetag, Anand Yang, uh, Gyan Pandey, all of these people and a lot of others have actually done a lot of work which tries to understand the nature and texture of the cow protection movement, uh, which is dated to the emergence of the cow protection movement in India and largely northern India is dated to late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and the first documented instance of cow-related riots that were named as such and that uh, led to the beginnings of a crystallization of a cow protection movement are actually dated to somewhere around the 1890s in northern and northwestern parts of India. And we have rich documentation from historians some of and some of the names I mentioned uh, that actually look at uh, specific as well as more general kinds of theorizing on cow-related riots. But the more I delved into this work, the more I realized, and that became one of my larger arguments, is that the way in which we tend to think about the cow protection movement is largely around heightened or spectacular moments of violence. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, the form of the riot really was at the center of the work on cow protection movement. So a lot of the work on cow protection movement is actually documenting the riots that were taking place in the name of the cow. Uh, and if the riot was the dominant form of violence, then uh, it is the lynching now, right? So uh, what, I, what I then began to realize was that while this work is very instructive and extremely valuable, what it does is that this kind of focus on only heightened or spectacular episodes of violence obfuscates the more everyday constructions of the cow becoming a gendered and caste marked symbol. And that kind of helps us to think about the ways uh, in which the everyday and the exceptional are related to and actually construct each other. So can our theorization and the larger story of the cow protection movement in fact benefit 
from the fact that we are now looking at more everyday constructions of how the of how the cow uh, comes to be this kind of gendered symbol if we are looking at a space like a goshala and uh, a goshala uh, is is a, is different from a gorakshini sabha for instance because a goshala typically even if run by the vhp is not imagined as a violent space on the contrary it's imagined as a very benign charitable space right hence all these ideas around seva so what happens to our larger kind of narrativization of the cow protection movement when we place the ideas of charity and seva at the center and then begin to understand how the cow uh, operates and charu gupta has actually written eloquently about the cow as a gendered symbol right how uh, there's a lot of work done on this my ethnography also draws upon and contributes to this understanding of how the cow in some ways is kind of created uh, in the, in the image of the brahmin woman so to draw from my ethnography you realize that uh, the speciality of the uh, goshala is very interesting uh, they take special care to ensure that the most productive and the most uh, quote unquote uh, valuable cows uh, and these are kapila surbhi breeds uh, that are native or indigenous breeds because uh, foreign breeds like jersey are not regarded as cows to begin with uh so these are the indigenous native breeds that are most valued so they are placed within a special section of the goshala which is specially very very far away from disabled cows or accident stricken cows or uh, who they will call defective cows to uh, and buffaloes just to uh, and uh, just to make sure that there is absolutely no contact no chances of mating so what we see is that there is this idea of purity uh that is kind of foregrounded the honor uh, of this cow needs to be maintained by making sure that it is in all ways symbolically and specially very very far from anyone who can be a threat to this purity right very similar to the ways in which the hindu upper caste woman's purity has been protected by hindu men against the penetration of the external other who often happens to be the muslim other right so um this mata now this can be the gau mata this can be the bharat mata this can be uh mothers and sisters who basically whose honor and respectability needs to be guarded from any kind of external penetration and then there are all kinds of very telling anecdotes or uh, so for example one of the karyakartas one of the senior karyakartas mentioned to me uh he had this interesting his own kind of myth making around um why uh, the productivity of cows has recently decreased and he dates this in in his own myth making this started happening when india was invaded by mughals and that is when um, this cross breeding started and as a result we have now severely compromised on the productivity of cows and he told me just as there is caste and gotra among hindus similarly we have to think about gotra and caste among cows and make sure and we we have to be very careful about how we are allowing these uh, mating processes to happen uh the other thing then that becomes important to this question of gender and caste is the very structure of the vhp leadership and how it's organized and how that translates into uh, the working working structure and organizational structure of the goshala all the uh, trustees the goshala is run by a 10 member trustee board and all these 10 trustees are men who are either brahmins or banias all the working class however comes from bhilgund and seheria tribes uh from mp and orissa and the way in which this kind of labor transaction is organized is that the workers some of whom come with their wives and children actually stay on the campus it's called the campus uh, of the goshala itself so there is actually no uh, real demarcation between the home and the workplace right and that has interesting ramifications on questions of labor and what is which activity is actually being 
counted as labor that then gets paid for right certainly and i think you know uh, something else that's interesting about the kind of research you've done as well is that it's an ethnographic study and i'm very sure that you know it's um, it's very different from reading up things in literature or even doing a short term sort of a study because when you're there when you're living with people i think it gives you a very different insight into what uh, you know uh, like the kind of um, of like research findings you know you get from it right so i think along those lines i'd like to know a little bit about how the ethnographic process sort of rolled out how it helped you and what you know your day to day findings were like uh, in that aspect so i'm very glad you asked that and i think there's a lot to be said about uh, the politics of the ethnographic method um i think like i've mentioned in informal conversations over and over again with you baba uh, is that uh, i feel like i could do this research the very fact that i could do this uh, was possible because of the kinds of privilege uh, i espouse and um while i was doing the ethnography i realized that there, i always had to do this tight rope walk between uh, privilege and certain kinds of gendered vulnerabilities um because a lot of times uh, in my research i found myself thinking that oh my god i'm being given this access because i come from a hindu family because i carry markers of brahmin hindu gendered respectability and because i have, my second name is sharma and i was always known as sharma ji's daughter now they didn't exactly know who my father was but like i said they had all the markers to place me as sharma ji's daughter they know that uh, the, the, her father uh, works in a bank she lives in so and so sector of faridabad uh they they can broadly kind of trace or place me uh, and my familial um markings which is what gives me access to this place uh i also found myself thinking however that this would be so much easier if i were uh, a man and again like you again you have to be a certain kind of man to be allowed entry into that space so um i think my interactions with karikatas were sometimes limited because i was a woman from a certain age um and also i was from jail uh and i think i had underestimated uh perhaps naively i don't know uh what implications this would have in the way in which i would carry myself in the field so uh this is something i have mixed feelings about but i was advised to not really disclose the fact that i am from jnu because that was the time when and and they continue to be right that when when this antagonism is at its peak and this can have severe ramifications on safety so there was always this kind of concern around safety but i feel the suspicion was also mutual because on the one hand they also let me into their space but they were also telling me the kinds of stories that they were interested in telling me uh for example my interaction with the workers was always heavily supervised and therefore very very limited the leadership would not really allow me to talk much to uh the workers whether men or women or even the children and they would often say ki unka dialect bahut alag hai to aapko samajh mein nahi aayega uh so i was so there was a lot of attempt on their part to uh, of course restrict and control where i was going and where i was not and who i was talking to and who i wasn't and that is something that i was always grappling with so i think um caste privilege gendered vulnerability they kind of went hand in hand with each other but my privilege was a big big factor in why and how i was able to do the ethnography in the first place and i think that really needs to be underlined uh, when one speaks about method and positionality and self reflexivity and all of that um because i feel that some of these categories can be really empty if we do not truly think about the roots of mediation or the roots through which we are able to access uh, what we call the research field um so 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 one is that 
the whole question about institutional affiliation and familial markers, which were also at odds with each other. So on the one hand, my familial location allowed me access, but the university that was that I was going to was always kind of lurking in the background. As, as my advisor and some of my peers told me, you are naive in thinking that they don't already know that you're from JNU. Uh, because they tend to also do their own research and they know who they are talking to. But that was always playing in my head. And that that meant that I was, that I'm still very conscious of uh, uh, where I publish and what that means for my research. And, and at the same time, these are people, of course, that you're ideologically and politically in an antagonistic relationship with, but these are also people that you're talking to, right? And they're not, like I said, the leadership is all Brahmin Banya men who have been VHP Karakartas for very long. The workers, however, come from Adivasi backgrounds, most of them, uh, who do not necessarily and definitely actually do not have the same relationship with the cow protection discourse that the leadership does. So there were many, many questions around the ethics, but also the substantive content of the, the substantive modes of how this ethnography is done. And these are questions that I'm still grappling with. But I have to say that now that I will, and that says something, I feel that's an important, I say this playfully, but also it's an important kind of marker when thinking about the ethnographic method. The fact that I'm not going to be a JNU student anymore actually places me in different ways in the field. And that is something that's also coming to be, that's coming to me with a lot of relief because my institutional affiliation is going to set me it makes a whole lot of difference if you're coming from a university in north america saying that this is what you research on versus a university from here which has been in a difficult relationship particularly difficult relationship with the hindu right here so so yeah so to think about questions of location positionality but also not in hackneyed ways uh, not just as preambles to your actual, to your quote-unquote actual research, but to actually thinking about how this significantly significantly inform your very research would be important. Definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's also something that makes the field of sociology and anthropology so interesting, which is that, you know, when you're studying subject matter, you can't distance, you know, yourself from it, right, the way you can. Uh, in science and all of that. And I think, you know, um, um, you know, it's, it's definitely very insightful to know that how, like the place that you were, you know, like born in and grown up in and all of that has sort of influenced your access to resources. And now I think along those lines, it's like, you know, a little bit more as to how it shaped your narration of research, if that makes sense, you know, how it may have structured the way in which, you know, like you've like written your paper and, uh, and framed a lot of, of your findings. Right. So, so much of that I am in the process of figuring out and I will as I do the PhD. But in the MPhil, I think what I tried to do um, very earnestly was, which I mentioned when I was responding to your previous question, was to make sure that, you know, typically in a dissertation, we have these chapters, uh, introduction, methodology, literature, review, conclusion. Uh, which makes me slightly uncomfortable because <laughs> it feels like questions of access and um, how you how you were able to you know your resources in the field if at all they are spoken about uh, seem to be constricted seem to be limited only to chapters of methodology as if they do not have a bearing on what will emerge from in your research findings but what I tried to do even in terms of how I structured and kind of narrativized my infill work was to at all times demonstrate this co-constitution, the process of co-constitution that shapes the researcher and the researched. How it was not as if I, this quote-unquote all-knowing researcher, could just go and excavate the authentic truth from the quote-unquote always knowable researched, right? But how we were constantly making each other through that research encounter. Right, how my own presence and persona as a researcher was also being informed by what is sometimes entirely called the field. Right. So I have tried to I have tried to stay true to that in the writing and 
narrativization of this whole story of cow protection and the way in which I locate myself in the process, which is always hard to do because you also don't want to be self-indulgent. Um, <laughs> such projects, I feel, often have to be guarded against like one's own narcissism. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a challenge to strike that balance, especially in the act of writing. But I want to be, what, but what I do want to be able to do is to kind of break this ossified sort of binary between the researcher who knows everything or can know everything and this, and you're just kind of slapping your knowledge on this uh, field from where you can excavate what you think is the authentic truth. So, uh, which is why to frame this as a kind of exercise in storytelling where I'm not really concerned with if the karikartas are telling me the truth, right? That wasn't my point at all. My point was I'm interested in the stories itself or what they are and the kinds of ways in which they are, they are working as a narrative for self-fashioning. So if a karikarta is telling me something about how the Goshala came into being and he has this rather uh, what some would call fantastical narrative of how it magically came into being and questions around funding and availability of land, uh, which are all very important questions that are either glossed over in his explanation or they um, or they have like this fantastical sort of narrative to it. Right now, so my point was that he may or may not be telling the truth, but that is not the point. My point was to kind of take the narrative for what it was offering to me and how it was working as a device for certain kind of self-fashion. What are the ways in which he is able to tell his own story through that story of how the Goshala came into being? I think that was a really rounded sort of answer to your question, but I hope it did it justice. Certainly, uh, it did, it did. And, you know, I think uh, a strand of, um, of what you'd mentioned, right, which is that, you know, I think something that sort of stood out to me was that, you know, you're looking for more of the narratives and how things have been framed and making sense of that rather than, you know, the search for an objective truth, right? And I think, um, you know, uh, like something else that you'd mentioned in, you know, in like the abstract of your research as well, is that you're looking to see how cow violence has sort of been understood, which is, you know, in a way that is different from that of um, lynchings or riots, as you had mentioned. So I think that's something I'd like to know a little bit more about. Right. So that again ties in with this idea of the everyday and the spectacular. Uh, work on lynchings, work on cow-based riots is all extremely important and has significantly contributed uh, to my own understanding uh, of the cow protection movement and in general Hindu nationalism, etc. What I think the danger here could be uh, was to take away from uh, more everyday kinds of constructions of violence. So this is something that I'm actually, this, this doesn't particularly uh, concern the uh, Gaushala itself, but one of the things that I, for example, came across was how often the children of the workers who are at the Gaushala are enrolled in what are called as one teacher schools that are run by the VHP. So the uh, role of the teacher is actually performed by the VHP Karakatta himself. Uh, often it's a him. Uh, and the way in which, for example, they are taught to learn the table of two would be to say Ram as many times as the multiples. So if two ones are two, two twos are four. So you say Ram, 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 right? That, that's how. So. How does one look at an everyday, and this is this is uh, this has been actually worked on uh, significantly. But I felt that the Goshala uh, was serving as a very telling space in terms of how this everyday enactment of violence is carried out. Right? What does it mean for a child of a Goshala worker to? learn the table of two in this manner, right? What does it mean for accident-stricken cows to be placed as far away as possible from the Kapila, Subhi and Kamdhenu cow breeds? What does it mean for an RS, uh, for a VHP Karakarta to tell me that um, the mating of the this cross mating, which has compromised severely the Hindu purity of indigenous breeds, etc., is can actually be dated to when Muslims came to India. Right. So, what do these kinds of 
innocent quote unquote innocent utterances in a quote unquote charitable space like the goshala actually mean for the cow protection movement for the here and now of the cow protection movement right so the fact that the women workers are regarded as part time workers because they are apparently working in the premises of the goshala only in the morning and in the evening they are cleaning their own badas which by the way like i said also happen to be located within the goshala itself right what does it mean for the gendered distribution of labor so what do these kinds of questions what is the very organizational structure where there are brahmin banya men in the trustee board and your working force is actually adivasis who in paper are paid a particular sum of money but there are really no mechanisms to ensure and we have in the past had news reports of strikes by uh, goshala workers around working conditions around non payment etc what do all of these everyday questions mean for the ways in which we are theorizing cow related violence yeah i think you know i think now that gives me a much more uh, like a more holistic sort of a view right into you know i think how the gaushala um, operates you know and what like the day to day you know like workings uh, are like and i think you know although you've already sort of answered this through um, you know the answer i'd like to know a little bit more coherently as to who exactly is the victim of such violence and who the violence um, you know and who is the person inflicting upon you know like the violence right is it a person is it a group of people and you know and i'm sure that you know these are complicated questions because it ties back into you know how the hierarchy of the gaushala um, sort of works but uh, but yeah i think you know i'm just looking for a little bit of like a coherent understanding into how violence is inflicted and who is the receiving and who lies at the receiving end of, of this violence so as a lot of surveys have demonstrated uh, it is typically uh, uh, men from muslim quote unquote lower caste backgrounds uh, who are uh, at the receiving end of episodes of violence uh, and the larger kind of framing uh, uh, on which we have this work around um, rights in the late 19th early 20th century also talks about how muslims were at the receiving end of rights that took place at that point we know very much uh, because this is something that's very much unfolding in in the present that the people who are often at the receiving end are from marginalized backgrounds um, activists and scholars have pointed out that uh, even um, across religious lines these are people who come from historically marginalized castes right uh, in the context of the goshala the violence is also structural right because like i said i'm also trying to tie questions of remuneration uh, working hours who gets to do what kind of work with the larger framings of violence right so the fact that women adivasi women workers are not given the status of full time workers uh, actually makes us ask what really we mean by work in this context and what kinds of erasures and perhaps violences Uh, are are uh, evident in the way in in their remuneration structures right or questions of representation uh, a question that i haven't been able to answer at least aptly enough through the mfil work because like i said my interaction with the workers was so supervised and was so limited uh, but what is their relationship with the cow protection movement do they see it in the same way as um, the vhp leaders who have a certain kind of vested interest and a certain kind of location within the cow protection movement and what is their take on this violence are all questions that i'm hoping to find answers to as i continue my research um broadly the way to answer this is that we know that these are historically disadvantaged castes uh often from muslim backgrounds that have had to pay uh, the price and uh, asha singh has written Uh, uh beautifully about this uh, in one of her pieces in round table india where she says it is uh, where, where where she actually points out the irony of how historically all the cattle rearing work has been done by ahids uh has been done by <coughs> has been done by historically disadvantaged castes and now it is 
these men from the VHP, uh, upper caste men who get to be, uh, you know, the self-appointed spokespersons of the cow protection movement. When it is actually often people from marginalized backgrounds who have had very real relationships with cows. Right. And Radhika Govindarajan also talks about this kind of animal. There, there's interesting work happening along uh, animal human relationships and the ways in which the animal is at the center of a lot of relationships uh, that uh, humans uh, or human animals, as they're now being called, forge uh, with the environment, with their own uh, socio-political systems. Uh, so what has this kind of narrativization of cow protection movement actually done to the relationship of people from certain caste backgrounds with animals? And one of the things that I point uh, towards in my work is Gauseva actually emerges as a very central category. And I talk about the semantic and uh, symbolic differences between Gauraksha on the one hand and Gauseva on the other in terms of how Gauseva then emerges as a as a category with two with, with a twin aim. On the one hand, uh, the VHP men get to make the claim of uh, doing go seva and thus protecting the cows who are go who is the gomata and who is this that and the other. But also, they get to kind of design this rhetoric of how we are contributing to the upliftment of um, adivasis and giving them opportunities. And Sri Watson, in his historical tracking of the idea of seva, actually tells us how seva, in fact, is this interesting um, analytical category that never talks about, and I'm, I'm majorly simplifying and therefore distorting the argument, uh, but when we talk about seva, there is often no place to talk about rights, right? In the, in the very uh, idea of seva, there is a hierarchy that is uh, encoded between the savior, the seva who becomes the savior, and the recipient of the seva, right? And the recipient has to be happy with whatever he or she is getting from the project of seva because this is not something that is being designed on their terms, right? So what does this um, idea of go seva, where hierarchies either remain intact or are sometimes even exacerbated but the savior gets to make this claim of hum to seva kar rahe, right? Which is why the Gaushala is an interesting space because it is embedded in all these material and spiritual resonances of charity. So the interesting question to ask is uh, lynching, riots, all of these which are so obviously exercises in spectacular violence what is it that the rhetoric of go seva is actually allowing the vhp karyakartas or in general the brahminical project of cow protection to achieve right what is this reliance on the idea of seva and what is this use of seva as a register that is allowing them to do in the service of hindu nationalism right right definitely and um, you know i think to sort of um, look into the cow protection movement itself, right? I think it's a very interestingly placed movement because a lot of movements that you see, you know, for animal welfare, you know, I think tend to be uh, in nearly all cases, you know, free of any such affiliation with, you know, like religion or caste or gender. But I think, you know, like this is not the case in like this, you know, like case. So I think I'd like to know as to, apart from the ties it has, of course, you know, Hinduism and the like, I'd like to know as to whether there is, you know, like a capitalist agenda to it or like what exactly the different stands of motivation are and how it's been uh, like put forward and and like interpreted in in that sense right so i think the intersection of animal rights work and this kind of cow protection is an interesting one and is something that i am still kind of discovering and trying to know more about so in faridabad for instance there are four registered goshalas of which this vhp run goshala is one but is this the only kind of goshala? No, right? This is a VHP run goshala and it is therefore couched in particular kinds of institutional political uh, um, uh, aims. Uh, there is another, uh, and this goshala particularly calls itself, it identifies as a religious organization, which is different from other kinds of goshalas that might call themselves animal shelters, or there is one in Ahmedabad, which uh, a law, uh, which 
uh, self admittedly organizes itself along Gandhian lines. So there's much to be said about the convergence or the intersection of the terrain of animal rights at large and the ways in which it speaks to questions of Hindu nationalism. What are the ways, uh, and this is something I'm trying to understand, what, what, what are the ways in which claims of animal welfare are actually different in, in, in both of these, right? Uh, this is something that I don't have an answer to as of now, but it is a question that I very much want to explore. What are the ways in which um, animal rights activism speaks to the ways in which the animal is framed within the discourse of Hindu nationalism? Interestingly, this Goshala has a lot of cows, but it also has some other animals like rabbits and squirrels and pigeons. Uh, and I'm, I'm yet to understand why these animals in particular? Is it just accident? What is the point of having them? How are they seen as, uh, how, how are they treated within the space of the Goshala and what is their place in this larger discourse that, that's at work within the Goshala? Uh, what are the ways in which different animals uh, might also be located? So the monkey is also an interesting one because of uh, the likeness and evocation of Hanuman. Um, right. So, yeah, I think both of these questions, one is the place of the animal in animal rights work versus the VHP Goshala and what are the convergences? Are they drawing upon each other? Are they borrowing from each other? Um, are they also setting themselves apart from each other? Right. Uh, but also other animals within the Hindu nationalism discourse. Yeah, I don't think that's that's an answer to your question uh, in any way, uh, but I don't have it and I'm kind of flagging these as pillars that I want to explore. Yeah, definitely right. And, you know, I think uh, I mean, there definitely is scope for, you know, like further <laughs> research and and look into it, you know, which hopefully, you know, like the PhD process can do. A final sort of thing I'd like to ask you is whether over the course of your research and even before that in both literature and in ethnography, whether you found uh, anything that has uh, surprised you or anything that's noticeable that you would uh, like to mention? When I started out, everything was surprising. The fact that, so I was born and raised in uh, Faridabad. Okay, scratch that. I wasn't born there, but I was raised there for most part, enough for me to think that I was born there. Uh, I, I, it's, it's a town that I've grown up in, that I have supposedly known, but it was in 2014-15 when I was there um, and I was back from Bombay. So uh, the very fact that there were Goshalas and the very fact that the Goshalas were actually playing, they were not just there existing somewhere in isolation, but the very fact that they were playing a very important role in people's everyday lives was news to me. Uh, there were rickshaws that would come every day in the morning and now this is happening in residential localities across the country um, that would come every day and collect food or money or various other kinds of resources for the Goshala. There are, as I'm sure you may have seen, cow-shaped um, gulaks that are kept in shops uh, where you can actually contribute towards Goshalas. So initially, I was just interested in when did all of this start happening? How do I actually historicize this? Uh, like I said, I was initially, I was, it was a very superficial, perhaps kind of intrigue about the space of the Goshala itself, right? And it was also an exercise in understanding my own location and my own family, because this is something that I had come in contact with through my family, right? So to exercise uh, this became a way to understand my own networks, which were all caste networks, right? The model of the Goshala is something that I was surprised by. The fact that, uh, in the sense that it was new knowledge, the fact that they're actually getting workers from BHP mobilized districts in MP and Urissa, who are then staying at uh, the premises of the Goshala. Um, I was also very surprised to find uh, the how labor intensive this work is since i was staying there i could see the actual process of what goes on when you uh, bring in an accident stricken cow to the gaushala how difficult it is to how much expertise it takes to attend to that right so uh, 
I guess I was being surprised uh, or I was learning new things pretty much every day at, as, part, as part of the ethnography. And of course, the ways in which this then contributed to what I was reading about the cow protection movement was also very interesting because uh, I, was, I was reading all kinds of things about, uh, of course, the place of the cow uh, in the terrain of agriculture, what that has meant for Haryana as a state, Faridabad, and this is something that I'm only beginning to delve into. Uh, Faridabad also has a very interesting kind of place um, in in how in terms of how the VHP emerged there, how uh, the VHP kind of emerged as the powerful political force that it is right now. Uh, I am learning that Faridabad, which was called the city of hope, actually had a very robust culture of trade unions, uh, which was displaced by nationalist organizations such as the VHP. And it has had Faridabad and Gurgaon have had interesting but also distinct trajectories of neoliberal development, which also speaks in particular ways to the cow question that I'm just beginning to learn about. Practically all of this research uh, was, was something that helped me learn new things and really understand the ways in which this research in particular, but any research in general is uh, informed very, very centrally by our own location. Uh, and networks, yeah. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, I think you start out at one place and then at the end, once you've looked at everything, you can sort of reflect back. And uh, I know I said that the previous question, the last question, but, uh, but, you know, I think this leads me to one more question, which is that I think I'd just like to know as to whether there are any implications of your research for policymakers or anybody else who might be interested in the field. Right. So one is at the level of scholarship, like I said, the work, of course, contributes to the ways in which we understand uh, violence, the ways in which we understand the persistence and workings of Hindu nationalism, uh, its linkages with caste and gender in, in I think, finer ways uh, than, than we think about uh, caste and nationalism. Um, uh, but also... Uh, the linkages between karya, seva, Hindu nationalism, activism, and there's there's much to be said about again semantic questions of activism. Uh, what really is karya? How what we tend to think of as activism, uh, given our own institutional, political, ideological framings, etc. So I think at the level of scholarship, those those are the areas that the work hopes to build on as well as intervene in. At the level of policy, I think there are, there are, again, very, very important implications. One is that we have already learned that all these stringent laws around cow slaughter and beef ban have actually had very adverse effects on farmers, for instance, right? Now, there is so much fear and risk of one's own life in just transporting cattle, for instance. We know there have been lynchings, um, of, of uh, dairy farmers for absolutely no reason, the kind of brutal violence, uh, which is so, uh, which we have all seen unfold many, many times in the past few years. And data has shown us that it has reached unprecedented levels since 2014. I'm referring particularly to a survey by India Spend, and very many such surveys have been carried out, right? So what we have definitely learned is that these laws have only been counterproductive. So much for this rhetoric of protecting the cow, etc. They have protected neither the cow nor the farmer. In fact, uh, people have had to abandon their cows, uh, and it often you have to often pay a fee when you uh, leave your cow at a goshala, which those who are and most of them being in financially precarious backgrounds do not want to are not or are not able to afford the fee. So what you do is you just abandon the cattle who then become a liability uh, for other farmers because they are creating uh, creating havoc in fields uh, or uh, they are just kind of lying there wandering about etc. Right. So uh, what what will these kinds of ethnographies actually tell us about laws to do with 
cow slaughter, beef ban, etc. Right? Um, again, very real implications for consumption patterns, questions of livelihood and dietary practices, because as we know, there is a caste question there as well, in terms of historically, uh, historical practices of livelihood and uh, diet are very much located in questions of caste, who eats what, who gets to eat what, who eats what for what reason, right, uh, uh, is, is something to think about. Then again, the condition of workers in Gaushalas, like I said, there have been uh, reports of strikes by workers due to inhospitable working conditions or non-payment of wages. So what is the state that Gaushalas are in? What is it that workers who are here actually need? What is the state of cows in Gaushalas? Are they readily available? Go to spaces for protection of cows are not or not. So when we think about law and policy, I think whether it is laws to do with cow slaughter or it is uh, Gaushalas and the state they are in and what workers they need, what do relationships between the leadership of Gaushalas and workers? Because these are often not bound by formal contracts in, in a lot of the cases. And these are very ad hoc come and go sort of relationships, which are also impacted by migrational networks. So what does that mean for workers, right? And uh, what does this actually do for uh, the protection of the feminized Brahminical symbol that is actually at the center of it, which is the figure of the cow, right? So all of these, I feel are questions that will benefit from uh, ethnographies of this nature. Definitely. And, uh, you know, there are no single answers, right? I mean, these are complicated questions. And I think it takes a lot of research and a lot of years to begin unpacking these questions. Uh, so yeah, I think that's about it for from my end. So thank you for taking out the time today. Thank you so much, Abha. I had such a great time talking to you about what I have worked on and what I plan to work on in the coming years. Like you said, it's a vast and dense project. And there are so many intertwined layers that need unpacking over the course of time. So I'm, I was, I had a great time chatting to you, and I'm very excited to continue uh, working on some of the areas that I'm familiar with, but also some that I haven't explored at all in the MPhil because it was a two-year project. So let's see where the where the PhD work takes me. And this was great. It was also good to uh, hear myself out loud. Uh, talk about some of the things that uh, I've been thinking about. So thank you. Definitely, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do consider subscribing and sharing it along. Apart from Anchor, which is our main hosting platform, you can catch us on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Republic, and Spotify. If you're on Twitter, then be sure to follow the handle ResearchDown for further updates or just to get in touch.